while I was preparing this sermon about a month, five weeks ago, I received word that uh, a man I know who had once been a friend of mine had been removed from his ministry in a very large, very successful St. Louis church, a guy that I knew when he was just a guy right out of seminary, a friend of a friend. He'd moved to St. Louis. He had 30 people in his basement. And I watched that ministry grow into more like 3,000 people. And to learn that he had fallen to the point where he had to be removed from ministry was um, heartbreaking for me. I remember last year having to vote at a presbytery meeting here in Missouri, a gathering of all of our Presbyterian ministers and elders. It was a church outstate Missouri where the pastor had had an affair with a woman in his church, small church. And I remember the vote wanting to find any other way. I thought of St. Peter, how he denied Christ three times publicly and yet went on to lead the church in the coming months and years and decades after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. I thought, surely there's a way to restore this man, and yet I think every one of us pastors in the room were thinking the same thing. We didn't want to do this. We didn't want to remove him from ministry was he repentant? Maybe, maybe not. He didn't, did he confess it? Sort of, but only because he got caught and he had done something that would make it almost impossible for any married couple in his church to come to him for counsel in their marriage. He had destroyed his wife. He had destroyed another marriage and caused great pain in his church. And uh, we loved him. He was my brother. And I was trying to find any way not to vote yes to remove him from ministry. But I think all of us in that room were thinking the same thing. I need this to happen, not just for his sake, but for my sake, to help keep me from following the the same path. It was difficult. It was heartbreaking, and I hated it. When we talk about Christian accountability, the discipline with which we discipline ourselves and each other, training ourselves to follow Jesus, training ourselves, training each other to believe the gospel, that it's true for me, that it's true for you, and to trust Jesus and functionally rely upon him in this difficulty that we call life. What does it look like to have healthy accountability? What does it look like to have healthy discipline? What do you do when some fellow Christian hurts you, wounds you, very possibly even on purpose, maybe unknowingly? But when you're sinned against, what what do you do? What does it look like? We've all heard instances in which accountability breaks down. It breaks down in one of two ways usually. It breaks down because it's abused by those who are hungry for power and needing to be in control. Or it breaks down because it's absent altogether. I uh, saw a letter that somebody had gotten in their mail. Uh, They had joined a church, I'm not going to tell you where, Cornerstone Reformed Church. 
And then after a while, they stopped, they stopped going. Stuff was happening in their life. And uh, there had maybe been a piece of mail that they had ignored, maybe a phone call they didn't return. And then one day, this letter shows up in their mailbox. Dear Bob, it's my sad duty to inform you that you will be excommunicated from the fellowship and membership of Cornerstone Reformed Church this coming Sunday. We have attempted to call you back to fellowship with Jesus Christ You have not responded to any of these appeals, but have steadfastly refused to listen to us and to worship on a regular basis with us. As a result of your non-attendance at any worship services, in violation of Hebrews 10, the session by action of October 27th is striking your name from the rolls of the church. Jesus himself, the letter reads, tells the church to discipline those who refuse to repent of their sins. In obedience to this command, we are handing you over to Satan and his kingdom of darkness in hopes that you will come to your senses, repent, and return. By this excommunication, we are declaring that you are no longer a Christian, and that you are no longer a part of the company of the saved. Please turn away from your self-destructive path and turn back to Christ as your Savior Should you desire to repent of your refusal to worship Jesus Christ, please contact us so that you may be restored to Jesus Christ and his body in his name, Pastor Shade, for the session. Now, I don't know the whole story here. And there's always two sides of the story. But I can say I've I've heard of people regularly being dropped from the roles of a church for not going to the church anymore. That happens in most churches every year, usually around December. That's perfectly normal. I don't know that I've heard of somebody being excommunicated for missing church. There are a lot of reasons your attendance can lap in a church. It could be that you are severely depressed and can't get out of bed and can't face the world and need somebody to come to you and to help you get healthy and well. It could be that you've developed a mistrust of leadership because of patterns that are unbiblical. It could be that you've moved away and don't live in that town anymore. It could be that your workplace, your boss has changed your schedule around and you have to work on Sunday mornings and you haven't yet figured out how to get out of that job and get into another where you can worship God in the company of his people. It could be that you've developed theological differences with your church and you're now going to the Baptist church down the street. It could be that you're going through a time of tremendous loss and difficulty and you don't really want to see anybody or be seen by anybody. Excommunication. What in this letter they're saying they're doing, even this church's understanding of what they're doing, by barring somebody from the communion table, saying you're not right now at a place where you should be taking communion. That's what excommunication is, removing you from communion table. But they didn't go on and say that by this we are declaring that you are no longer a Christian and that you are no longer numbered among the company of the saved. Is that something a pastor can really know? Is that something an elder can really discern at the heart level? To say by your actions you're not walking in the community of God's people, yeah, we can do that, but uh, we distrust discipline. We distrust accountability because we've experienced it and people around us have experienced its abuse, its abuse by those who seek control. And yet it's also very often absent 
completely, which causes other problems. You think of the crisis in the Roman Catholic Church among our Catholic brethren right now where so many people have left the church and been wounded in the church because of a cycle, a pattern in which priests would abuse the most helpless and defenseless. And bishops would know about it. And instead of disciplining the matter, instead of involving the police, instead of bringing accountability and structure to bear, they would instead quietly move the priest to another parish where we would continue to have more victims and destroy more lives. It's the lack of discipline that caused the crisis. It's the lack of accountability that allowed it to grow to the point that it has grown. In Protestantism, you've seen the same thing. I remember 20 years ago when the noted televangelist Robert Tilton uh, was discovered by Diane Sawyers and ABC News in conjunction with the Trinity Foundation and Christian Anti-Corruption Organization. They found that Robert Tilton had built this huge television ministry. He was the guy with his hand on the screen, asking you to put your hand on the screen, saying he'd send you a handkerchief if you sent him a donation, telling you to give seed faith money with your prayer requests and that he would weep and cry over your prayer request and the money would come back to you 10 or 20 or 100 fold with blessing. And what they found when they dug around the dumpsters behind Robert Tilton's ministry offices is they found thousands and thousands and thousands of letters and pieces of mail filled with prayer requests. And the letters hadn't been opened. They had a little slit about this big, and the check had been pulled out, and they were thrown in the dumpster. $80 million a year of prayers unanswered. No accountability, no discipline. Its absence is damaging. Its abuse is devastating. Is there a healthy kind of accountability? Is there a healthy kind of discipline that we can have as a church? What does Jesus say when your brother Christian sins against you? What do you do? How do you process it? How do you think about it? We're looking at Matthew 18 beginning in verse 15. In your pew Bible, this is page 1527. I want you to follow along because Jesus, he's way more specific here than he ever is. Jesus Christ never in any of the Gospels gives anybody a to-do list. He always hits at the heart issue, goes deep, rearranges the furniture inside your soul except this one time. This one time in all four Gospels where Jesus says, when your brother sins against you, there are steps, there's policy, there's procedure. Why would he do that? Because when you've been wronged, there is only one right way to handle it. And the million other ways are not right. It's exceptional in all the words of Jesus that he says in this one instance, I'm telling it to you step by step by step because he's saying there's only one way to approach this. Every other way will destroy you and destroy your brother. Let's hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 18, verse 15. He says this, If your brother sins against you. Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. 
But if he won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then you treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. I tell you again that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. These are the words of Jesus, the Son of God. What is he telling us about accountability? First, why does it matter? And his language, if you can pick up on it and read between the lines, he's saying it matters because it's a family thing. Jesus says it's when your brother sins against you. That means that when you're dealing with fellow Christians, you're dealing with a different category of people. You're dealing with people who are members of your own family because when you believe in Jesus, the scripture says, you become adopted. You stop being a neighbor and you become a brother. You cease being merely a creature of God and you become a son or a daughter of God. You become an heir. God, therefore, then becomes your father and your daddy in a way that he's not otherwise. It's what we call the doctrine of adoption where you now belong, and as a result, you belong to one another as, as a family, as, as, as brothers and cousins and mothers and fathers and sisters. Uh, now, some of you, you, maybe you're not Christian yet. You're not yet ready to sign on the dotted line. You're not ready to say, Jesus is my Savior. You're not ready to, to take membership vows saying that you will submit to the government and discipline of a church. And for you, the good news for you right now is that you are totally off the hook. Because this discipline is only for those of us who profess faith in Christ, who have submitted ourselves willingly to uh, the community, the family of God known as the church. And so uh, if you're not there yet, then I hope you get to the point where you want that, where you want to follow Jesus, where you believe he's your Savior, and you want people to help you follow him. But Jesus is saying this is about family. Uh, this is more than tolerance. You know, you don't tolerate family. Well, actually, you do, but you shouldn't. You're called to love your family, to, to invest in them. It's more than what the world talks about in tolerance. Tolerance says, I don't care what you do because I don't really care about you. It doesn't really affect me. I don't need to control you. That part's healthy. I just don't care about you. Um, some of you are married, And so uh, in marriage, I want you, for example, to try this. On your anniversary, next anniversary, if it's your anniversary, happy anniversary, uh, on your anniversary, I want you to reach across the table and I want you to take your spouse by the hand. And I want you to gently squeeze their hand and look into their eyes and lean ever so slightly toward them and whisper, honey, I tolerate you. And I want you to let me know how that goes. Because when you're dealing with family, you're dealing with a community that's to be a community of love. 
You're dealing with people to whom you have obligations. You, you, you owe them love because they're your family. They're not a stranger to you. They owe you love. That's family. It takes a community, you know. Uh, even in my own walk with God, you know, there are huge areas of sin to which I would be utterly enslaved right now were it not for the fact that a fellow Christian meets with me every single week and they actually uh, graciously have made it their business to know what I look at on the internet, where my smartphone goes, what kinds of things I may be browsing, and they've been for 14 years now helping me walk with Jesus in an area in which a whole lot of men and uh, more than a few women fall and fall really badly. The bondage I would be in were it not that somebody loved me not as a neighbor, but as a brother, where it was, it's his issue, what I do with, with my thought life, because he's my brother, and he's made it my issue, and it's not trying to control me, it's trying to help me live in the freedom in Jesus in which I want to live. You know, I, I, I can be blind to my spiritual state. I do things all the time where I don't realize even what I'm doing. And so do you. One of the most common characteristics, interestingly, of churches that abuse, of churches that are emotionally unhealthy, that have an unhealthy power dynamic. Churches that abuse, the most common characteristic is the pastor has no what? Accountability. We need it. It's a family thing. Uh, You know, you need your pastor to have accountability. Trust me. And yet, if you need your pastor to have accountability then how is that any different from needing your spouse to have accountability, needing a Christian businesswoman to have accountability, needing a deacon to have accountability, needing parents as parents to have accountability. Uh, We need this community, this spiritual family to nourish us, not to shun us when we fail, not to coerce us or manipulate us, but to hold us to our own convictions. Tim Keller talks about this way. He says, if you were to go out and join an organization, we'll call it the Bird Watchers Club. And you were to join the Bird Watchers Club and you're out in, you know, Forest Park on a Saturday afternoon with the Bird Watchers Club and you've got your binoculars and you're looking at birds and this other member of the Bird Watchers Club taps you on the shoulder and says, you know that guy you're seeing? He's no good for you. You need to get rid of him. I don't like what he's doing to you. Then you would respond and say, excuse me? This is the Bird Watchers Club, and I'm here to watch birds. But in the body of Jesus, it's different because we're family, because family have obligations to love family. And when you see family getting ready to walk off a cliff, you go out and you grab them and you hold them back and you say, dude, that's a cliff. When you see family enslaved, you schedule an intervention in order to help them be free, in order to help them be alive. It was a number of years back that uh, Friendship Presbyterian Church, a small church in our denomination, uh, Friendship Pres in Black Mountain, North Carolina, had seen an incredible growth in membership. It had gone in just a few years from 30 members to 60 members. And the increase of 30 members were from three families that had moved to town from Idaho. And they took all the vows and they professed all their faith. And yet, 
things started to happen. And in particular, one new ruling elder started posting things on Facebook that were blatantly racist, putting down various brothers and sisters in Jesus, putting down their fellow human beings based upon, in this case, the color of their skin. And it turned out that these three families of 30 members had ties to the Aryan nation. And this church then did what it had to do. It then started, it then went and, and, and tried to show them their fault. Listen, you can't say these things. Jesus calls us to love. He calls us to love and to self-sacrificially love. Are these your neighbors? He says, love your neighbors. Are these your enemies? He says, love your enemies and bless them and do not curse them. And we're looking at your social media. There's a whole lot of cursing and a whole lot of hate here and a whole lot of things that don't reflect Jesus. And he got defensive, but they worked with him for a long time. And eventually, they tried then a couple of people talking to him, and that didn't work. And eventually, the elders sat down with this elder and ended up going all the way. And they had to excommunicate this elder to say, you should not be taking communion at the Lord's table because you are not walking with Jesus because you do not have love. You are not willing to learn love and gentleness and kindness from him. I think it was probably the first time a Presbyterian elder had been removed from ministry and removed from the communion table for the sin of racism. But that's what we owe each other as brothers. If they're brothers, if they profess to be brothers, it's family. Results aren't the point. You have obligations to family whether they hear you or not. See, when Jesus rescues a life, he doesn't leave us alone. You know, you've, you've, I've heard a story uh, not too long ago at a, about a guy who grew up, and he didn't really have much of a family. His dad died when he was just two years old, and his mom wasn't too involved in his life. She was working multiple jobs just trying to get by, and so this kid almost had to raise himself. And yet his saving grace was the family that lived across the street from them. You see, the kids in that house were the same age as him. And so he got to go over there to their house and spend time with their family and play with their family and eat dinner with their family. And those kids' parents took an interest in him, and they loved him, and they never tried to control him. He wasn't their kid. They never laid a hand on him. He wasn't part of their family. And yet when things would get out of hand and when the kids would cross boundaries— They'd just tell him, Timmy, I think it's time for you to go home now. And so he'd get his stuff, collect his things, and he'd head out the door and walk across the street to his own house. And yet, as he would be crossing the street back to his house, he'd hear the other kids getting in trouble with their mom and with their dad and having to face the consequences of their actions. And this kid would think, boy, am I lucky not to be part of that family I get to play in the creek whenever I want to. I get to go out whenever I feel like it. Nobody's going to tell me where to go or when to go, and I don't have to tell anybody when I'm going to go or when I'll be back. I get to do whatever I like. I can grab any food I want to out of the refrigerator whenever I feel like it. I get to stay up as late as I want. No one's telling me what to do. And yet late at night, when he was alone in bed, having stayed up far too late... That little boy was wishing that he was asleep in the house across the street. He was wishing he had a family. And maybe you're here on a day like today when we're looking at what Jesus does, says to do, and, and you're thinking, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not in a family like that. But are you really? Are you really? Or are you sick of being alone? 
I read about an Iranian woman. She was an artist, very sophisticated, very successful contemporary artist in the north of Tehran, part of the privileged class, the westernized secular class in Iranian society. And uh, she found that life in Iran was often very smothering, smothered by her family, having to call her mother first thing in the morning every single day, having to check in with aunts and uncles, constantly having to have a brother with her here or somebody there, or everybody making her life their business. And so she moved to the West. She moved to Germany, I believe, and she became a very successful contemporary artist in Germany. And yet after a number of years... She sold everything and she moved back to Iran. You know what she said? Why would you do that? You had freedom, you had liberty, you had independence. But she said this. She said, in the West, people have their independence, but they pay for it at the cost of managing their loneliness. How much time we spend on hobbies because we're managing our loneliness or how much time we spend on the Internet or on Facebook or on video games because we're managing our loneliness, because we've managed to push family away so that we can have our independence, but the downside is that we are alone. And Jesus is saying, I want the church to look less like American culture and maybe just a little bit more like a Middle Eastern culture, only where all of you are in the same family and everybody's business is that everybody thrives in Jesus. Okay. It's a family thing, Jesus says, so what does it look like? Jesus gives steps, and we're actually just going to run through them quickly here. He says, if your brother sins against you, first step. Second thing, he says, go show him his fault, just the two of you. And third thing, he says, you have won your brother. First step in this very unusual piece of spoken word from Jesus, giving us procedures says, if your brother sins against you, that two things there. First of all, he's dealing with sins. He's not saying, go rebuke somebody because you have a difference of opinion or because your personalities are in conflict or because you are of a different political persuasion or because you find them to be annoying or you don't like the way they dress or you don't like how they teach their kids or you don't like uh, the feeling that you have around them or you don't like the fact that you would do things very differently. Jesus says if that's your issue, that's the bad between you and God because that's your judging heart being critical and Jesus can set you free. He can release you from that. He's saying if your brother sins against you. These are specific concrete actions, words, things that are said or things that ought to be said that are not. And he says, go to them and show them his fault. Uh, You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about when you're doing this. He says it's like picking a speck out of your brother's eye. You know, when you touch somebody's eyeball and they've got something in their eyeball and you're putting your fingers on the whites of their eyeball, how do you do that? Very gently. Very gently, Jesus says, go and show him his fault. And he says also, just the two of you, uh, you know, just the two of you going to him. Specifically, he says, if your brother sins against you. Not if your brother sins against somebody else and they've gossiped about it to a bunch of people and then everybody gets to go team up and beat up on the guy where they have no knowledge of what actually transpired. Uh, That's what the Bible calls gossip, where Jesus talks about Correcting, he says, when your brother sins against you in the best manuscripts. Uh, 
because the shape of biblical reconciliation, the, the shape of gospel conflict resolution is always a line. It is not a triangle. And your mission as Christians, as the ministers of this church, is to close down triangles. Uh, when somebody comes to you and says, let me tell you what Mary Sue did to Bob. You say, hold on. Mary Sue, Bob, what do you have to do with this? How do you even know about this? Okay, um, so Bob gossiped to you, and now you're gossiping to me, and you have just taken a conflict, and Bob expanded it into a triangle. You're then expanding it into another triangle. All these people are going to be trash-talking Bob, not having been there, and what's not happening? Bob is not dealing with Mary Sue. Bob's calling there, just the two of you, is to go show him his sins. It's collapsing that triangle down into a line so that the people are actually dealing with the people with which they are actually in conflict. I read one author who talks about the danger of taking offense over the sins of others. Uh, It's what happens when gossip happens. Jesus is saying... Listen, that's a situation where you can... Because you're mad because this person did something to that person, presumably, you can never get reconciled with them because their sin wasn't against you. That's just gossip. I've seen people's character trashed in churches. And Jesus is saying, when your brother sins against you, go show him his fault. What if it's against somebody else and you're aware of it? Maybe you're a witness to it. Then you go to that person and you say, listen, I saw what happened there and I don't think Mary Sue has any clue what she did to you. I think she's blind to the fact that she really hurt you and, and I really think you should go talk to her about it and if there's anything I can do to help you get connected with her and to help that conversation happen, let me know. In fact, I'll follow up in a couple weeks and find out how that went because I really want you to reconcile. That's collapsing the triangle. That's doing it the way Jesus says to do it, which is the only way. You correct actual sins against you. You go show him his fault, just the two of you. That means going, not emailing. Email cannot communicate love very well unless they happen to be in Tajikistan, and even then you should probably Skype it. Correction cannot be received in digital means. Uh, It just can't. And he says, just the two of you, so don't rebuke them by email and then copy 15 other people on it. Correction cannot be received in the face of others. Some of you are very good parents, very gracious parents, and I see how when your kid does something really wrong in front of a bunch of people, how you and your child kind of disappear for a while. Why? Because you don't want to shame your child publicly by rebuking your child in front of a whole bunch of other people. You want to go to your child, just the two of you, and show him his fault so that you can win your child. It's the same thing with adults. Just the two of you. Show them their fault so that they can see, so they can understand. Because Jesus is very concerned about our burden of shame. He knows what it's like when people get talked about because Jesus was talked about. He knows what it's like to be roasted in a community because he was roasted in a community. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you, my followers, to roast anybody in a community. I want you to protect the guilty as well as the victim. 
I want you to protect their honor, cover their shame, keep every conflict as small as possible. Don't open up triangles left and right, but deal with your own issues and deal with them in love. I remember Jerem Bars talking about this when a uh, a young man, a seminary student, had noticed another seminary student coming out of an adult bookstore. And in those days, that's before the internet existed, so that's where you had to go. And, and the student asked Jerem, he said, so do I, do I rebuke him? And Jerem said, well, only if you love him and are willing to walk with him as he deals with his addiction and are willing to be a friend and a support to him throughout. Otherwise, you have no business rebuking anybody. Because it has to be in relationship. It's when your brother sins. Show him his fault. Do it in love. If, if you can't feel the love. And I've been rebuked in ways that have made me feel more loved afterwards than I was beforehand. Jesus says, then if he repents, you have won your brother. Because the goal is to restore your brother. That he would have life. There's no pound of flesh. There's reconciliation. There's grace. There's freedom. There's hope. There's life. There's healing. And it only goes further where there's a stubborn and hardened heart. You expand that circle slowly, he says. You bring one or two others in, but this is after a lot of time and a lot of process to avoid shaming them. And then you still work with them to try to help them see so that the gospel can flourish because this isn't about compelling subordination. It's about eliciting fellowship. Uh, Worst case scenario, I've seen it happen twice in 22 years in this church where somebody's had to go all the way. They, you know, usually when somebody starts getting in trouble with their church, they just disappear and go to another church. But uh, twice I've seen this go all the way through where there was just absolute hardness of heart. I remember one ministry leader in our church who uh, had committed adultery uh, with several women in a couple different ministries, not all of them in the church, um, lying to them to seduce them and uh, being completely unrepentant about it. And we worked with him for most of a year, and ultimately we had to bar him from communion uh, indefinitely, and it was tragic. But the goal, the hope, is reconciliation. Now, this is not an easy thing. It's not easy when you realize that you have somebody maybe in this room that you need to go talk to and say, gosh, you know you hurt me. And that you have to be willing to hear their repentance and that you have to be ready to forgive freely from the heart. Uh, That's a hard thing to do, and yet Jesus gives us tremendous grace in this passage. Pentecostal kind of grace on this Pentecost Sunday. Jesus says, uh, first of all, that you are adopted. You are brothers. He calls us brothers multiple times here. And in the ancient world, to be a brother, to be adopted by a father, meant a couple things. It meant, first of all, that all your debts and liabilities were then taken up by the father. And your father now carries all your debts, all your liabilities, all your failings, all your sin, and all your shame. You don't carry it anymore. And in this case, it means his eldest son, his firstborn son, carries that burden and pays for it for you. And it also means that all that he owns and all that the Father has belongs to you, that you are rich now, that you have a Father, you have a Dad who loves you completely. And yet Jesus also, in verses 19 and verse 20, he promises incredible power. He says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound by my Father in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed by my Father in heaven. Wherever two or three witnesses are gathered during that confrontation, Jesus says, there 
I am with you. It's in the context of calling somebody out on their sin, in the context of gently going to them and saying, dude, I think you've got a problem and you might not see it. It's in that context that Jesus says that you are not alone, even if it's just you and one other person. Jesus is the third person there. If two or three of you are gathered, he is the fourth one present. He is able to do what no dictator can do, what no police officer can do, what a school teacher can't do. He's able to do what no army on earth can do. He's able to change the heart. Do you believe him when he says that he has power to loose and bind on, in heaven what's loosed and bound on earth? Do you believe when he says he's present? It's the, the habitual unbelief of Presbyterians in our very cognitive, intellectual faith. Our basic unbelief tends to be that we disbelieve Jesus when he promises that he is there personally present in the power of his Holy Spirit and people who you think are going to be hard-hearted and unwilling, he is able to transform them and set them free. I'll tell you a story, a true story, about a church back east, a couple named Jeffrey and Shelley Roberts, not their real names, don't Google them, you won't find them. But uh, they were members of a church in our denomination for some time. And, and Jeff, um, he was unhappy with his marriage. He was unhappy with his family, with his state of life. He was unhappy with a lot of things. And after a while, it turned up that Jeff was having an affair. And when it came time to that point where he had to decide between two paths, does he leave the affair and seek reconciliation with his wife if she is willing as the injured party? Or does he leave his wife and pursue the affair? He left his wife. He left his church. He left everything he had and everything he was. He thought he knew it was going to make him happy. And his pastors and his elders, they went through the whole process. They pursued him. They tried to help him see. They, they prayed for him. They tried to pray with him. They tried to get to him. He didn't want anything to do with him. His heart was hard. He had made up his mind. And eventually the elders had to declare that he was no longer welcome at the communion table. He had been disciplined, declaring before the whole church what Jesus says, uh, what man has joined together, let man not put asunder. Quite a while later, I think four or five, six years passed, his ex-wife at that point had remarried and had kids with her new husband. And the church hadn't really heard from him in years until the pastor got a piece of mail from a guy named Jeff. Dear pastor, I really don't know where to begin. It's with a lot of humility that I write to you right now. Considering the mess that I've left behind when I simply dropped off the map, I believe humiliation is a deserved feeling on my part. I suppose instead of continued babbling, cutting straight to the point would be the best way to go. I want to write to you to confess my sin. I've sinned against you as my pastor. I want you to know that it's not been lost to me that I've sinned first against God, and then against my ex-wife and their family. And through these sins, I've brought shame to the whole church. But suffice to say, I've made a big old mess. And I'm asking for forgiveness. 
I do owe you a sincere apology. As a friend and as a mentor, you were there for me. But I rejected your counsel and I rejected your friendship. And for that, I'm truly sorry. And even though I know I'm the most untrustworthy and most undeserving man alive, I humbly ask you to please forgive me. Thank you for everything that you did for me. Thank you for everything that I'm sure you had to do for my ex-wife after I failed them. Here's a guy who's saying, I've blown it. I've ruined it. I've ruined my life. I've ruined my wife. I've ruined my family. I've ruined my church. And I know I'm to blame. And how did he get to that point? But the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, was there. All those times they'd prayed for him, Jesus was there. What they were binding on earth, Jesus had bound in heaven. What they were loosing on earth, Jesus had loosed on heaven. And when they decided to hand him over, to bar him, to say, you've gone too far, Jesus was there. The power of Jesus to take a hard-hearted man who says, I thought I knew what I needed. I thought I needed that woman. I thought she would make me happy. I thought she would satisfy me. I didn't want Jesus. I was mad at Jesus. He wouldn't give me what I wanted. And it was a road to ruin. And now I want to come back. I want to follow Jesus. And I want you to help me. Friends, that's the power of the gospel. To show mercy to the hardest-hearted soul there is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithful compassion to this man and to so many others, Lord, through the years. Lord, I thank you for your discipline. I thank you for accountability. I thank you for those who have called me back from cliffs so many times, those who have been gracious to show me my faults, those who have helped me see where I've failed to love and have helped me understand what love looks like. Lord, I'm not good at that. And yet you are because you're the good shepherd who lays down your life for the sheep. And so we come to this table, Lord, seeking you, seeking your grace, consecrating to you these elements, Lord, that you would teach us to love and to be a family. For it's in the Lord's name that we pray.